Hi listeners, welcome back to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. I'm Lisa Campbell, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different. With permission from the producers of The Doorstep, a podcast by the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, we're streaming one of their episodes, originally aired in April of 2021. The episode features an interview with Professor Marty Smith, an environmental economist and my colleague here at Duke. Hosts of The Doorstep, Nick Vostev and Tatiana Serafin, talked with Marty about sustainability in global fisheries, seafood security, and oceans governance generally. And their conversation ranges widely, from new policy initiatives of the Biden administration to old policy legacies of the Cold War. It's a great lesson, and we're pleased to replay it here. Enjoy! This is The Doorstep. Sponsored by the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. Featuring Nicholas Kovostev, Tatiana Serafin, and Martin Smith. This episode was recorded on April 22nd, 2021. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this edition of The Doorstep. I'm your co-host, Nick Vozdev, Senior Fellow here at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. And I'm Tatiana Serafin, also Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Council. Welcome you, you all today uh, on this day where uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are welcoming over 40 countries to a climate change, a global climate change summit. Uh, and we are going to talk climate change in oceans. And we are welcoming today Professor Martin Smith from the Duke University Nicholas School of the Environment. So excited to have you here speaking with us, especially because of your research uh, on oceans, including fisheries, marine ecosystems, seafood markets, coastal climate adaptation. So much to talk about, so much to talk about. But I do wanna start out uh, with saying to our audience, um, what we try to do here at the doorstep is localize global issues. And the ocean is 71% of our planet. If there is nothing more global and and, uh, lifespanning than that, 127 million of you uh, Americans live in a coastal city, including me, including Nick. I don't know where you are, Marty, but uh, you in a- Uh, I'm in Durham, uh, Durham, North Carolina. So not a coastal, not a coastal city. Not a coastal city, but still. Um, We're all affected uh, by this um, globally. The ocean is such a big part of our lives and and we feel here at the doorstep, we should be talking about issues, especially, um, I feel two specific ones. I I wanna start out with, um, and Nick, I think you and I talked about this, the nutrition aspect because the pandemic really brought to light um, the food scarcity uh, issue. and the fact that we really need to look at how we're going to feed the globe and how this impacts um, us um, on a market level and what we're eating. And so certainly one of the things we should be eating more is fish. Fish. All right, that is a, let's just jump right in with a tough loaded question. So first of all, (laughs) thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be a part of this podcast. And and I also appreciate that, that you framed the importance of the oceans right up front in the way that I like to frame it. It's, it's 70 plus percent of the planet. A very large percentage of our population lives in coastal areas. And these areas are very vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And so I think you're absolutely right to start off in that way. In, in my world of economics, uh, working on the oceans is kind of a niche area. But I always like to remind people the oceans are a big part of the planet. So, uh, 
So let's just jump right into the first question you're asking about, um, the role of oceans in, in human nutrition. It is absolutely critical. Uh, we think of, you know, uh, globally, um, where does our food come from? And we tend to sort of add up um, things like where do the calories come from? Where does the protein come from? And by that scale, uh, protein coming from uh, the marine environment in total is, is relatively modest. Uh, more animal protein comes from uh, terrestrial livestock like chickens and, and beef and, and uh, pork and so forth. Uh, and of course, most of our calories come from uh, grain, grain crops, row crops, things like corn and wheat and, and so forth. But the seafood plays a very important role because it's, it's highly nutritious. Uh, it's often a lean protein. It's a source of really important macronutrients like omega-3 fatty acids that we've heard a lot about uh, in, you know, in, in combating um, heart disease and other uh, uh, other nutrition-based uh, nutrition um, diseases. And, uh, and this is something that's probably underappreciated in the United States. Seafood contributes really important micronutrients. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of vitamins and minerals that are, that are in high concentrations in seafood mm -hmm. that are critical to uh, human development that, that are a huge portion of those micronutrients for many seafood consumers around the world. Those things are important for Americans, but they're not nearly as important as they are for a lot of people in coastal areas, in low-income countries that don't actually get a lot of animal protein from other sources and have far fewer sources of those micronutrients in their diets. So that's, a, that's one area that, that seafood is, I think, globally, very much underappreciated. And what are some things that, you know, either private or public sector can do to kind of increase the, the knowledge that this is a product that we should be focused on, um, especially as we look to kind of, you know, cut our carbon emissions and, you know, we all know the cattle are, you know, bad and, you know, and yet we still are so meat and potatoes. Um, and I think this really got highlighted in the pandemic when people were rushing to the shelves and they were empty, you know, they were empty. And, and you know, and what role did you see, did you see fish stock also empty as, as empty as the chicken and the beef yeah market? so so I, this is a really important question and, and honestly we don't really know um, the extent of the effects of the pandemic on supply chain disruptions in in food in general and in fisheries and and seafood uh, in particular we do have a lot of anecdotal reports of these supply chain disruptions and and there's this sort of paradoxical aspect of it that uh, during the pandemic, if you're a, somebody who fishes for a living, being out on the water is <laughs> safe a place as you could possibly be. But of course, selling that fish into markets really rely on these supply chains. And so any kind of disruption meant that it didn't necessarily always make sense for, for people who are, are fishing for a living to go out and catch the fish that, that they otherwise would be catching. So I think that's, that's certainly part of, of all of this. But when you talk about emptying shelves, uh, it really highlights a tension in global supply chains in general. 
because the, the flip side of what you're talking about is that those shelves filled back up very fast. What's miraculous about the pandemic is how quickly the food system actually responded and how these very elaborate global supply chains that stock supermarkets uh, in the United States and, and Europe and, and other sort of wealthy countries, but the same kinds of supermarkets are emerging increasingly in developing countries. So those global supply chains, yes, they were disrupted, but they responded quickly. And this, this is where you get right to the heart of the tension, where if you have, if you're somebody who is relying heavily on those kinds of supply chains, um, you're very vulnerable to those, those disruptions. Uh, so in my family, you know, we had the benefit of, of having a CSA, a community supported agriculture subscription. So our vegetables kept coming, even though um, there were some issues with getting food from the supermarket in the, in the near term. Uh, if you're someone who gets their fish protein um, from your local lake or your river, or you live on the coast and you fish, maybe you're a fish, a fisher who uh, sells some of that for your livelihood, but also consumes a lot of it and uses some of that for your subsistence for your family. The, the pandemic did not disrupt that activity uh, mm -hmm. locally. So that was, that was an opportunity for somebody who might otherwise have had supply chains kind of shut off um, to be more resilient. Um, but when you think about something like climate change, that's gonna take those resources, those fish resources, and, and move them. Maybe, maybe they'll degrade them overall. Maybe ocean warming will lead to fewer fish in, in certain areas, but it will also move some of the particular fish that are in certain areas as they, they migrate in, in response to climate changes in the ocean. So being overly dependent on the local is a real problem for climate change, but having some connection to the local is a real benefit for dealing with the, the resilience of, of a shock like the pandemic. So that to me is, is the tension. How do we find policies? How do we facilitate some kind of middle ground there that can take advantage of both of what these two very different parts of our food system have to offer? Well, with that, uh, that's a great segue into a, into a larger question that I'd like to ask. Uh, our sister program here at the uh, Carnegie Council, the uh, Carnegie uh, Climate uh, Governance Initiative has been trying to, to get a handle uh, with the oceans on uh, how do you address the, essentially the complex governance issues uh, that, you know, the tension between local actors uh, and national actors, uh, international regulation, uh, do you see any types of uh, processes for governance of these types of issues, management of fish stocks, things like that, uh, or anything else uh, that can be effective? And what uh, actors or stakeholders do you think may be uh, most critical uh, for some sort of uh, effective regulatory regime for the oceans? Yeah, so this is, this is tremendously important. The starting place is, is that not all news, is, not all of the news is bad news. Yeah. So uh, one of the, the things that's probably underappreciated globally is that most, uh, most seafood production in the oceans is actually within uh, the 200 mile exclusive economic zone of, of countries. So for, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, essentially 
in the 1970s, largely due to Cold War kinds of politics, um, globally, there was an agreement that, that nations would have a right to assert jurisdiction uh, over their marine resources out to 200 miles. And because that mostly contains continental shelves and the places where we have upwellings of nutrients that lead to marine productivity, that's actually where most of our fish come from. Most of the fish that, and, and shellfish that are part of, of the um, marine products that, that come into the global food system. But it's not everything. So, um, so within those 200 miles, um, you also have uh, fish stocks that move in and out of them. Some of those move across into other nations' exclusive economic zones, which creates important and challenging uh, bilateral and multilateral negotiations over who gets, who gets how much of the fish. And sometimes they, they traverse through the high seas. So highly migratory fish stocks like tunas and swordfish, uh, they go through into, in and out of the high seas and into and out of different uh, countries' jurisdictions. So that's, that's a little bit of the kind of the global landscape of, of jurisdiction. Within different countries, you see some countries doing a, a very good job, some countries doing a not very good job of asserting jurisdiction and governing within those exclusive economic zones. Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's really important to highlight that the United States is, is a country that does a, an incredibly good job by global standards of sustainably managing its fish stocks within its exclusive economic zone. It's not perfect. There are lots of places where the United States could improve, but by global standards, uh, our rate of overfishing and our rate of overfished stocks in our, within our jurisdiction as a country are, are actually quite good. We, we, we have, uh, we've really turned the tide very much on, on overfishing. But we also have the advantage as, as a country of being a wealthy country that has an elaborate regulatory system and, and lots of um, income that supports a, a tax base that can pay for all of that. Lower income countries don't have the kind of state capacity that we have in the United States. Think about how, how much space is out there in the ocean, even within that 200 miles, and how hard it is to regulate and enforce in those areas. So a, a, a poor country doesn't have the United States Coast Guard. And so that creates huge challenges in, in the global food system. And that's a lot of what uh, nonprofit organizations have really tried to to figure out, are there ways to assert governance in, uh, in parts of the world that may not always have the state capacity to do it the way um, countries like the United States and, and Japan and the European Union, Australia, New Zealand, and so forth. Countries like that that have the ability to govern with what we would think of as traditional regulatory instruments, uh, how can we get that kind of thing those kinds of outcomes in other parts of the world. So that's led to a, a lot of interest in things like eco-labels for seafood and, and things like the Marine Stewardship Council. Can, can you find ways of certifying fisheries that are doing a good job uh, and then use the power of consumers and their, and their desire to pay a little extra for sustainability? Can you leverage that 
uh, to get better outcomes in other parts of the world. The, uh, the unfortunate reality is we don't have a lot of really good news to report about that. I would say the news is, is fairly mixed. Um, so the, the technologies um, that we have available now can, can help in this global governance uh, challenge. And one, one of the most promising technologies right now is, is blockchain, using blockchain technology so that you can trace fish all the way from where it was caught, with what gear, uh, and, and potentially even by whom, what, what particular individual fisher caught it. You could trace it all the way through the supply chain to where it was processed, to where it was exported, and, and where it came into a, a country, and then how it ended up at your supermarket or your fish counter, wherever that was. So blockchain technology creates the possibility of this very high level of traceability. And if you have a very high level of traceability, the potential for consumers and other actors, um, nonprofits, or possibly even just large companies that are interested in behaving in a sustainable way, the large retail chains, for instance, there you create the possibility for those actors to exert assert more influence on, on the, the sustainability outcome. So that is, that's something that I would say is still unfolding in, in the seafood space. But I think what's really interesting, and it dovetails with research that we've done at Carnegie Council saying that consumers are willing to pay extra if they know that their products are from places that uh, have parallel um, principles, right? you know, from democratic and, you know, and, and human rights oriented and sustainable, to your point, sustainable practices um, that we found in our um, surveys that, you know, Americans do want that, do want to see that. It's just a matter of how do we make it happen? I love this idea of, of blockchain. I have to say, every time I go buy fish, I, I don't know. I, there's, I read a little sign and I hope that it's true. <laughs> I hope that, you know, I yeah. hope the cod came from Alaska. I don't know. Um, and so I, I, I love this idea and I'm wondering, you know, what is the cost of making that happen and, and who is doing it? Because, and, you know, is there, I'm going to say this, is there a billionaire that loves the ocean that is trying to save it? Because last episode we had a big discussion about how billionaires love space and are trying to save it. Is there anybody trying to, you know, aside from, you know, small not-for-profits or NGOs, um, well, I think there are some, yeah, there are some big dollars in the foundation world that, that have really invested heavily in um, thing, things like eco-labels, Marine Stewardship Council. And, and, um, and so I do think there's a role for uh, that kind of philanthropy and all of this. But on some level, this, uh, you know, the, there are limits to what consumers are willing to pay for this attribute. And, and so one, one thing that sometimes gets lost in this discussion a little bit is that yes, consumers, a lot of consumers care about sustainability and a lot of wealthier consumers might, might be willing to pay even more for that. But on some level, people also care about the taste of the food. They care about the health attributes, which may or may not coincide with, with the, the ecological sustainability of the product. And they, they care about things that, that uh, are, are unrelated entirely, like the convenience, the product form. 
people in the United States, they want to eat really kind of nice fillets. Um, that's a, that's, that willingness to pay for the, the convenient product form that's kind of the way a lot of people are used to consuming fish, that kind of overwhelms uh, what they're willing to pay extra for that, um, that sustainability attribute. So I also want to turn this around and think a little more from the Global South perspective. So when, we, when we're kind of sitting here thinking about, okay, we're, we've done a pretty good job improving our fisheries in the United States, and, and, and we are worried about consuming fish from other parts of the world that maybe aren't doing as, as good a job sustainably in sustainability terms, and for good reason. Um, it's not necessarily the, the priority of, of the global south. So we think about sustainability as being in the forefront of the discussion um, as, as Americans who are concerned about the oceans. Uh, in parts of, of the world um, that are more you know, developing economies, seafood is, is a part of food security. As that is really at the forefront. And that means it's, it's serving this critical role in terms of human nutrition and um, basic macronutrient availability like protein, but also those micronutrients that we talked about. And, seafood, and the ability to fish is serving uh, an important function as, as a livelihood. Now, of course, we have livelihoods in, in the United States. There are people who fish commercially for a living, and, and that's important too. But the scale of, of how many people actually fish as part of their livelihood in countries like Indonesia is just much, much greater. And so, um, yeah, sustainability is important. But there are other things that, that are of, of critical importance as well. And sustainability isn't necessarily at the top of the list. Um, how do you engage then the, the global south? Or what do you see, you know, how are areas we can engage it with? You know, I know Biden's come up with his 30 by 30 goal, um, you know, 30% of our lands and oceans to conservation, even though acknowledging that we're at the forefront. So how do we take on that leadership role around the world? Well, I think it's, it's a fine line because we certainly don't want to be paternalistic. And we know from other, ask, you know, from other fields in, in environmental economics, so broadly speaking, my, my field is, is called environmental economics. We know that there is a tendency for countries um, as they get wealthier for uh, pollution to actually increase for a while as they industrialize. And, and, and then as they continue to get wealthier, um, the economies transition more towards service economies. Also that wealth gets piped into regulating pollution and so more pollution control is installed. And so you end up with, with what's, uh, what's typically an inverted U shape. You, you, you typically have a, a, you know, a range of development where you have increasing pollution followed by decreasing pollution. And that's what, what we call the environmental Kuznets curve. So I think there's, there is a fine line between um, you know, us kind of jumping in and saying like, hey, you in, de in the developing world should be doing this and thinking about what is, what is actually helpful for um, the long-term um, well-being of, of the whole planet and the societies 
that that are a lot less well off uh, economically than than we are. So that's I think that's really the fine line um, there. And so that means that there can be a number of areas where um, technological assistance is is useful. There can be a number of areas where we can we can potentially support maybe either maybe even financially support effective governance. But we also um, have to confront the reality that this is this is what keeps me up at night, really, when we talk about these issues. There are times when absolutely in order to get more fish in the long run, you need to dial back your fishing in the short run. That's just kind of rule number one in fisheries. But what do you do when dialing that back means some people go hungry? Um, so I, they can't continue to do what they do ad infinitum because eventually the fish will be gone. But, but what about the short run? How do you get somebody who, who needs that fish to eat tomorrow, how do you get them to stop fishing or, or should you even get them to stop fishing? That is what keeps me up at night. And I think that's an area where um, really targeted uh, development aid is, is important. You need to find a way to, to, to feed people so that they can make actual sacrifices. And, and I don't just literally mean like give them food or I, I mean sort of sustain people's whole livelihoods in, in a transition toward a more sustainable future. And that's something that, that we really haven't done much of. We, we haven't really dealt with, with that, that problem. And, and this is the extent to which the sustainability emphasis and the food security emphasis to some extent talk past each other. Well, and that to me seems quite quite critical, uh, your last point about uh, this nexus. Uh, we just had uh, this week the Wall Street Journal uh, discussed uh, in great detail this question of food security on the oceans and the question of uh, richer countries or, or large fishing countries uh, uh, poaching on uh, or stealing or removing fish that might go uh, be used in, in uh, other countries in Asia or Latin America, or particularly for Africa. Uh, but also this question too, uh, you know, the, the President uh, Joe Biden is unveiling very ambitious targets for uh, environment, for climate, for emissions. Uh, we have this discussion about uh, should we be using this as a, as a form of environmental great power competition with China, not for uh, you know, not for uh, geopolitical ends, but essentially to try to get China to uh, also take greater steps uh, in moving forward in this transition. I mean, do you, do you think that we can reach some sort of accord among the countries of the world where there's a, an agreement, essentially, or an acceptance of this point that you've made, that we have to uh, find a way to uh, guarantee this a certain level of of food and economic security in order to be able to get this transition forward, uh, or is the risk that we're going to run that uh, uh, once these measures become politically unexpedient uh, because food prices go up or, or standards of living are impacted that we're not going to see movement. Uh, so anything that you've been seeing from, your, from uh, your perch that would either lead you to optimism or pessimism on that? Yeah. But this, this is really important. The, I'm fairly optimistic about this for, and, and for one reason, and that reason is aquaculture. And I'll get to that in a second, but, 
But I also, I want to provide a little context here. So we think about the sort of competing um, issues with sustainability and food security. A lot of the, um, it, in the sort of global space of, of countries that are, you know, going and fishing in other areas, including on the high seas, um, but also, you know, countries that have access agreements off the coast of West Africa, for instance, a lot of that is somewhat of a legacy of state-sponsored distant water fishing. In, you know, in the cold, I mean, we are still dealing with a lot of Cold War legacies here. Um, the, you know, the Soviet Union uh, to, you know, and, and subsequently China um, and, and even the United States, there was a lot of state sponsorship of, of building up capacity of fleets to be able to, to, to fish in distant waters. And a lot of that capacity is, is still out there. And, and to some extent that was about like, how do you grab up um, resources to support your version of the right, you know, the right economy? So, you know, competition for distant water resources was, you know, was part of that Cold War legacy. Um, now, the reason I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, about everything in terms of aquaculture is that now roughly half of, of the seafood that's consumed globally comes from farmed fish, farmed fish and shellfish and other products. Now, a lot of that is freshwater, um, not marine protein, but we, we kind of, in the seafood market space, we, we lump these things together. So we think of food that comes from aquatic environments uh, whether it's marine or estuarine and like coastal estuarine environments or purely freshwater environments, we, we call all of that seafood because in the marketplace that they actually compete directly with each other. So somebody who's considering buying a, you know, a trout might also very well be considering, you know, buying some cod or, you know, some haddock. And, and so seafood is sort of the umbrella for all of that. Aquaculture, as I mentioned, is about half of the global seafood uh, production now, but it's, it's accounting for almost all of the growth in global seafood, basically all of the growth in global seafood production for the last 30 years. So global seafood um, coming from capture fisheries. So when we think capture fisheries, think a boat goes out on the water with a trawl net and catches fish, brings them back and sells them. That's what we think about as you know the iconic capture fishery. Farm fish, that capture fishery is basically leveled off in terms of global production in the mid to late 1980s. Um, and yeah, there are some room for growth there if we can do a better job managing fisheries. But the room for growth is relatively small compared to the fact that aquaculture has been all of the growth in the last 30 years and has led to um, a situation that people find kind of surprising. Would it occur to you that, that in real terms, inflation adjusted terms, that fish prices are no higher today than they were 30 years ago when the total production of seafood from the oceans leveled off? And this is in a world where we've seen continued population growth and we've seen um, dramatic growth in per capita income, you know, at an average level globally. So we've seen all this massive increase in demand 
and prices are no higher. And the only reason that that's the case is aquaculture. That is the, that is the simple reason I teach this as, as an illustration of Econ 101. Um, the demand grew, shifted way out, and the supply shifted out enough to keep prices basically stable. So why am I optimistic about aquaculture? We have been farming fish you know, for millennia as, as humans, but we have been farming fish in a, in a sophisticated way of domesticating them, selectively breeding them only for a handful of decades. We did not really get into the business of, as, as, as humanity, we didn't get into the business of, of selectively breeding fish as livestock until the 1960s. And even then we just barely started, you know, poking into that. And so now we have, uh, we are realizing that, that hundreds and thousands of years of experience with, with terrestrial livestock, um, we can actually realize incredible gains um, by applying sort of modern breeding techniques, um, modern, uh, kind of modern scientific uh, knowledge using genetic modification, gene, gene editing, things like that. There are all kinds of possibilities for more efficient production of fish uh, if, if we go down that road. Um, and it doesn't all have to be you know, in the form of um, really sophisticated you know, molecular biology and, and using um, genetic techniques, a lot of it is also just the experience of how to, uh, how to build a good pen to farm your salmon. That's not something that, that you know, the first attempts at that beginning in the you know, 60s and 70s, we're a lot better at that now. And if you take that same kind of progression where you, you keep getting better at these things by learning from doing, and you apply it across this wide range of possibilities of fish that we can be farming, both in marine environments and in freshwater environments, the possibilities for growth are, are, are quite substantial. So it's my hope that, that, that all of that will help to take some of that pressure off of, of the, the places that struggle most with government. I don't think that that will solve all our problems, but I think it will, it's one reason for, for optimism about problems that sometimes feel fundamentally insolvable. I think you make some super excellent points. I really love the optimism. I do wanna ask about this Cold War legacy because um, we've been looking at, you know, in all of our episodes, kind of this leftover, you know, um, and even in the administration, all these leftover uh, people who think about the Cold War as the framework for governance and, 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 and diplomacy. Um, how do we move past this? How do we move past this? What are you hearing from your students, from your, the Gen Z generation? What do they think? And, and I, I, you know, I want to throw this question in. I, I love Gen Z. I want to, you know, see them take more ownership um, of, of making decisions uh, and take ownership of your optimism even and, and move it forward. Yeah. What are you seeing on that end? Um, that's really a hard question to answer. I, I find <laughs> that as I have gone through my career, the older I get, 
the, the less familiar my students are with the Cold War world that I grew up in. I mean, I grew up doing nuclear war drills, you know, un, like get under your desk, which I always thought was absurd. But, you know, I, I grew up in San Diego, sandwiched between the, you know, Camp Pendleton Marine Base, the, uh, the Miramar Air Force Base, and one of the largest Navy installations, you know, in the whole United States, in San Diego. I'm like, what? Getting under my desk? What is this going to do? So, so for me, the Cold War was so like front and center in everything. And yet my students are kind of only kind of vaguely aware of that world order. And so I, I don't know what the answer is in terms of um, this kind of transition to a different form of, of global governance. It, this is, this really is, get, you know, pushing the limits of, of what I can say from my, my expertise as an economist who works on the oceans. Um, but I, I do think that um, there's a little bit, there's a story that I like to tell people about that says something ab about all of this and, um, and how much confidence we should have in, in our economic system. And, and that, that is that the whole um, origin of modern natural resource economics, the idea of using capital theory to study how best to use our natural resources, which is really the centerpiece of, of how economists approach things like fisheries. That all grew out of uh, initially what was, what was President Truman's Paley Commission uh, that he, he, that led to the founding of a think tank called Resources for the Future, which I'm sure you're familiar with in, in DC. And um, the, the, the Paley Commission was ostensibly worried that, uh, yeah, we've got the right economic system, but what if we run out of mineral resources and other key natural resources to fuel our market economy? And that that is the, the basis on which the Soviets kind of overwhelm us, the United States, who otherwise have the right system. And so this kind of idea that there is this sort of weak link in, in like the market economy is, is the rationale for, for this explosion of interest in what does natural resource scarcity really mean and, and how consequential is it? Um, so I, I think that whole experience is, is one of thinking with, with humility about um, how our kind of way of doing things is, is the right way of doing things or being, being humble about that and being open to other approaches. Now, I know that's not a very good answer to your question, but I, I feel like that's, there's some, there has to be some kind of humility about how the world order uh, could unfold if, if we're going to make significant transitions in, in how we govern the oceans. Yeah, that's going to be quite interesting, given that we have the uh, meeting going on today, uh, the, uh, the virtual uh, summit of world leaders talking about uh, a number of these issues uh, and that question of, of governance and also of commitments that will be made, I think, is going to be uh, very front and center. And uh, as we look forward to hearing what's coming out of the Biden-Harris White House today and tomorrow, we want to thank you so much 
for joining us, Marty. Uh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. And we want to ask you back maybe to rate how the Biden Harris administration is doing on oceans and ocean policy in the coming months. If, if we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, so much. I will thank you for having me. And I will I will be following that uh, with great interest, as, as you might imagine. Thanks for listening to The Doorstep, sponsored by the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. For more, go to carnegiecouncil.org. Stay healthy and safe. You've been listening to Seize the Day and The Doorstep. Thanks again to the Carnegie Council for allowing us to replay the episode. More episodes from The Doorstep can be found at www.carnegiecouncil.org slash program slash the dash doorstep. Seize the Day is a podcast of the Duke University Marine Lab. Hathalovo edited the podcast. Our music is by Joe Morton, and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Visit our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at seize the day pod. Thanks for listening.